Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, we're back, we're live, we're recorded, we're ready to go. It is episode 280, Thursday, February the 2nd, 2023. Brendan here with Mark and thanks to all our listeners who've hung in there, Mark, hung in there in the last couple of weeks. We had had a couple of technical glitches, so we ended up putting up a couple of uh, Keeper episodes, a couple of pre-recorded ones that we had in in the bag, uh, ready to go. And um, hopefully uh, you can hear me, Mark, loud and clear. You loud and clear. Those keeper episodes were pretty good, Brendan. But there's nothing like being live. That's right. And uh, well, we have uh, we have the internet's to blame, I suppose. Um, we tried with Starlink um, contact with Starlink and and the the internet's that way. Um, last couple of times, and we struggled a little bit. So, but we're ironing out the glitches, Mark, of of the technology that we're using um, remotely from your position up in the northern regions of Australia and now we're back on the the well the standard sort of Telstra network here and hopefully this one will be loud and clear for everybody so yes um, and, and we're having a bit of a chat off air Mark before we started and um, I think it sounds like pretty consistently quite warm where you are at the moment. We are having weather that um that sits. It's currently about uh, thirty-one degrees, and here at um, Bamaga, that it's pretty much thirty-two degrees every day. Thirty-two Cel- degrees Celsius. That is not yeah, Fahrenheit. Yeah. <laughs> thirty-two degrees Celsius, um, and um, and yeah, it's muggy. Um, you guys get it a bit muggy down there, but it's. Um, I suppose the they always talk about the relentless nature of how muggy it gets up here, and but I, I as we were saying off air, I'm um, I'm enjoying it. Um, on the drive in, so that we could connect up today, um, the the Pajinka Road had frilled neck lizards and palm cockatoos and a couple of herds of horses, agile wallabies, and yeah, it's just wonderful being in the wilderness. Excellent. Not that I'm jealous at all, Mark, but um, I'm very jealous of you being up there. Um, good to hear you're both well up there and um, same down here. And I think we need to jump into the podcast, Mark. Um, that's our little update there. We have had a couple of emails from our serial emailer, um, Nick. Um, I think I passed them on to you, mate. You may not have seen them yet. Um, he says hello. And interestingly enough, we posted that episode regarding performing the third eyelid surgery or prolapse removal in rabbits and he mentioned that um, he just happened to do one that particular week that we spoke about it Mark and it all went well and actually no I think it was a few weeks previously and it's doing well and no signs of any dry eye in the one that he removed most of that third eyelid so excellent good to hear that we're not um talking a lot of crap or more crap than you <laughs> we talk a lot of crap but the scientific stuff we like to believe in 
Thanks, Nick, for your email. And we love emails at vetgurus at gmail.com, vetgurus at gmail.com. Visit the website, vetgurus.com. Visit our Etsy store. You can buy some great um, hats to keep you um, away from the sun there if you're in a sunny region. And you could, otherwise, you can buy some nice little socks to put on your feet. Um, go to etsy.com and search for Vet Guru's store. I think we'll jump into news market. I've got a bit of a quick, very quick one. It's an oldie um, from around um, New Year's um, period market. It was just quite an interesting little story because these types of things are occurring more often. And it's about Thor, which they named a walrus um, in the UK that was seen at delighted crowds, apparently, Mark, in Scarborough um, in in the UK, Mark, on New Year's Eve. Um, geez, they're big animals, aren't they? Um, they're, they're massive. Yeah. Um, so he just sat himself on a pontoon um, near the Blythe Yacht Club, Mark, and a large crowd quickly gathered, as you would, um, watching the walrus. And the thing that I found fascinating about this particular, it's a good good. Good news story, Mark, is that they cancelled their New Year's Eve fireworks display to avoid distressing the walrus. Um, that, that's excellent. That was fantastic. Um, so, and he just he just laid around a little bit. He did a bit of sunbake in there, and then he headed off a, a day or so later. Now, um, heading back, they think his long journey back up to the Arctic, Mark. So um, good news that, story because we've had those um, periods when, you know, other other um, other walruses and um, uh, elephant seals, elephant seals, et cetera, have been um, um, ex- lobbed themselves in where there's um, humans and um, have gone into trouble and there's even been some where they've been euthanized, hasn't there? I think you guys had one recently down near Melbourne where we had were. we had two yeah um, um, in two separate areas around the bay um, and uh, same story big crowds and um, they managed to keep out of trouble which is good um, but there we go Mark um, for news. the walrus Brendan my story doesn't segue easily from yours I suppose it does in a way um, I found an interesting article that um, that posed the question, why do we love some animals but kill or eat others? And the really interesting thing about this article for me was that they divide, they got groups of people and asked them about their, you know, their estimation, their value, how, what they thought of the animals. And they divided the groups up into, um, well, they got some vegans and um, they got some, you know, uh, people who just identified as relatively normal when it comes to animals. Not that vegans aren't normal. I don't want to confuse that. But just people who didn't, who weren't vegans, I suppose. And the interesting thing was that um, both groups held surprisingly identical perceptions of the animals that they were asked about. They were asked to rate um, the animals and they were uh, they were sort of sectioned into absolutist and re- relativist groups, and um, and really the the neutral or relativist group um, were identical to the absolutist group in almost every way. They they um, felt warmth about dogs, horses, and orangutans, but not for alligators, octopuses, tuna frogs, or prawns. Um, 
they they the survey participants almost universally thought that animals worth saving included tigers, sharks, and dolphins, whereas rabbits, cows, and lambs were deemed rather incompetent and not very lovable. Um, perhaps the biggest surprise um, was that both groups, even the vegans, considered food animals less sentient than pets and thus were absent of some of the rights and less deserving of some of the moral concerns that pets had. That that really surprised me, people. Um, these people viewed pigs, which are regularly considered as intelligent or more intelligent than dogs, as not very lovable. Um, these are fascinating. Like, just fascinates me how, um, you know, the the that we view different animals through different lenses depending on our relationships with them rather than giving them uh, some, you know, completely equal value in the world. What do you think, Brendan? Yes, Mark. Well, my thought is, and we had a bit of a glitch right there, hopefully I managed to cut out some <laughs> interesting words um, that was spoken. Yes. Um, well, I reckon maybe some animals taste better than others, Mark. That's my answer to that. But no, fascinating. Um, I noticed that you didn't talk about chickens, Mark, um, because there was a little bit of um, difference between the absolutists and the neutrals with chickens, Mark. Um, slightly more warmth with the absolutists and slightly less um, with the um, neutral people, Mark. Um, it is fascinating, yes. isn't it, that chickens are a bit of a touchstone species that, um, and, and I know this from working with um, uh, many people who do animal rights work, um, that they, um, you know, that the chickens seem to be a, I don't know, a, a, a particular connection for those people and they feel particularly uh, responsible for them. And so it doesn't surprise me that there is that bit of a difference. But I thought it was um, pretty funny, the photograph, the stock image they got for the article. Um, it's a... a uh, um, Dog? No, no, that it's a, ch the, no? the chicken one, the... the, the uh, a man seated on a stool in his oh, yes. and holding his pet chicken. With his suit and his trendy hat. Oh, yes. <laughs> he looks like yes. he comes from Melbourne. <laughs> no, interesting article, Mark. And um, I, uh, yes, uh, the, yes, interesting. We could, uh, you know, the comments about octopus as well, you know, um, being, being very, very... Um, intelligent animals but i mean gee that doesn't i don't know i mean just because they are or are not potentially more intelligent mark shouldn't be a factor in whether or not we should be eating them should it um so um i think the vegans have got um got the um things pretty well sorted mark i must admit it, it just takes every, all of that out of the equation and um just be plant-based and you don't have to worry um, or be vegetarian like you are. Um, and I'm striving to be a bit better as far as um, eating a little bit less of my meat, be a bit less guilty <laughs> of doing it. But um, having said that, I had a really nice um, pepper steak last night. <laughs> so anyway, let's move on from that, Mark, and I think we'll jump into our main topic. I'd, I'd be very interested in um, some comments from our listeners on 
on you know what animals should or should we not be eating um apart from that maybe perhaps we sh shouldn't be eating any animals mark um send us an email avian oncology you wanted to chat about avian oncology gee that's a pretty heavy topic there mark so tumors lumps and bumps in a birds mark and um, an excellent topic because we certainly haven't covered this one previously so let's jump right into it mark how do we it's diagnose it? We, you've got a bit of a dot point list of 50 different dots there, so I'm going to push you through them pretty quickly, Mark, so let's go. Well, the, the interesting first thing to talk about is that the diagnosis is generally, there's two broad groups of diagnoses. The first one are the ones that are visible from the outside. So the client comes in, a bird has a lump, I can see the lump. I need you to tell me what it is. The second group are where there's some change in behaviour or um, some altered uh, health status that the owners can detect. They come in, you do a workup, and you find that it's associated with a mass. Um, so they're the two broad groups that we see. And the interesting thing for me, and one of the reasons I thought we'd talk about it today, is that I think that this is happening more frequently um, and the number of cases that we get to see uh, as a result of workups are increasing over time as well. When I first started, oh, so many years ago as an avian veterinarian, um, almost all the tumours we saw were those uh, ones that were visible from the outside. Um, they'd altered the plumage, they'd altered the bird stature, and so people could see them. Uh, but these days, there's more and more diagnoses that we're making um, uh, and as a result of workups. And so, in a sense, we're seeing them earlier, I think, Brendan, and, and that presents us with a whole new range of options. Yep. So I think you had down next treatment of them, but I want you to just tease out a little bit of what you said um, with that introduction there, Mark. What are the ones you most commonly see? That would be my first question. What's And are there particular species that are particularly prone to tumours, Mark, that you see in private practice? There are. There are indeed. Um, our uh, budgerigar, our little Australian uh, um, green parakeet, those budgerigars seem to be little tumour factories. And it's probably not a big surprise. They're... they're virtually they're domesticated and they've been selected and often had little bottlenecks in breeding they've been bred for particular colors or um feather appearances and so we definitely see a uh, and and they probably live in captivity much longer than they would in the wild and they live in you know they're they're in the desert they're living for um two four maybe six years in the wild um, so those birds that we see in captivity often are, um, well, particularly we've regularly seen uh, budgerigars get over twice those uh, number of years under their belt. So they're in that geriatric phase for quite a long time and, and that's the time they're going to get lots of growth. So budgies are probably the prime species, but we also see them across uh, a whole range of species. Um, uh, the, the cockatiel, obviously, almost as domesticated as the budgerigar. But the large cockatoos, the uh, sulphur-crested cockatoos, um, and even though there's not a long history of large number of pet birds, the, 
the um, gang gangs and black cockatoos, we see lots of those guys with growths as well. Excellent. Thanks for that clarification. So diagnosis, Mark, of these and um, what's your approach to them? I mean, obviously, there's those external ones. Do you jump straight to doing a biopsy? Do you do a fine-nail aspirate of, of them all first? You know, are there, are there some that are more amenable to just poking a needle in there and, and having a good chance of getting your diagnosis or, and are there others where that's not really going to help much? Well, the, the trick I think I find with birds as compared to um, um, maybe our small animals, uh, mammals, is that I reckon, and I'd be interested, now I'm going to have to look this up, but I'm pretty sure that um, fine needle aspirates, in my experience at least, are less productive I still do them on every one that I possibly can because it's simple. Um, it usually um, gives the client a good guidance when you do get a diagnosis about which way to go. Um, but I would say that compared to other species, I get a, a less consistent result. And particularly, um, you would think that a lot of those superficial or more easily identified, um, that first group, uh, the client, the masses the clients can see um, yeah. that you would, you know, they're going to be external, so they're going to be, you're going to be able to get a, a fine needle aspirate. But I think a lot of those ones, by the time the the uh, client comes in, they're often um, uh, heavily scarred, they're often traumatized, um, and the fine needle aspirate you get may not necessarily contain the, the group of cells that you really want. Uh, but obviously, any time you have a mass, stick a needle in it and see what you can get. And the earlier you do that, before it becomes traumatised and secondarily infected or scarred, um, then the more useful that uh, fine needle aspirate biopsy is. But a significant number of them end up being, you know, excisional biopsies, particularly if we get them early. We might have a preen gland uh, mass, um, and we know that um, some of those are going to be obstructions and, and impactions, um, secondary infections, but a lot of them are going to be tumours. Um, and so, yeah, we might just go, okay, we know that uh, fine needle aspirate is going to be a, a good choice, but there's going to be costs associated with that. We're still going to recommend chopping it out most likely, so let's just cut it out in the first instance. So excisional biopsies, are often uh, a direction that we head in pretty early with birds. And that's what you've got down as the first dot point for treatment, Mark, just cutting the thing out, getting rid of it. And obviously I, I expect you're going to say try and remove the whole thing rather than taking a section of it, um, saves you potentially going back in there. But going back one little step, Mark, I, um, uh, a lot of these um, masses, external masses that we see on these birds, um, highly predictable as far as the types of tumour that would be there. For example, comparing it, say, with a you know a little rat here or a mouse um, with those mammary neoplasms, we have a high high chance of particular types of neoplasms based on the species there. So we can say to that client, look, you have a ratty, it looks like it's got a mammary tumour there. It's probably a fibroadenoma on that, you know, playing the odds. Um, do you say the same thing with these lumps and bumps on the birds, mate? It, it is a little bit more difficult, I think. There are a, a, a couple of classic sorts of cases, and, you know, the one that springs to mind are renal adenocarcinoma in budgerigars, and those birds generally present 
as neurologic cases because the tumour has, um, has eroded some of the nervous structures near the kidneys or damaged those nervous structures near the kidneys. Um, so there are species-typical, case-typical uh, examples, um, but the, the, they are, I suppose, the, the volume of cases, the, the number of um, people getting a diagnosis at, with these lumps um, that hasn't built up for many species. So, so while there are specific examples, it's not as clear cut maybe as with our um, uh, fibroadenomas in the rats or some of the other examples that we have. Yes, good point, Mark. So, getting back to the treatment, um, you mentioned doing the surgery there. Are there any other things we would consider? Um, I mean, assuming you've send off a sample there and we get our diagnosis from the histopath what what other options do we have um, apart from surgical with them that are, that are i suppose let's just keep it to the common neoplasms with the common species mark um that that you, what's your standard sort of um treatment process apart from that surgical Excision. Well, I think that one of the reasons I thought we should talk about this is that this has probably changed a little bit over the last yes. um, four or five years that um, there once was, you know, a sort of situation with birds that you chop the mass out and if that worked, great. And if it didn't, then that's all she wrote. But more and more we're finding that uh, specific um uh, um, tumours in specific birds um, respond to some of the other treatments that we might contemplate using in other species. Um, so specifically, uh, we're talking about things like chemotherapy um, and radiation therapy. Now, those modalities are, um, come with their own issues, which we'll discuss in a, mi in a minute, um, but there definitely is an increasing amount of evidence to suggest that um, that they should be uh, cont the contempl you should contemplate using them. That um, that there's such a wonderful outcome in specific examples um, that uh, that uh, increasingly I think as those modalities become more available, um, that um, that it's definitely worth investigating whether you go ahead and, and use those ones. Well, as far as getting access to those treatments, Mark, and, and the protocols for those, um, where would you sort of point people towards? Well, I think um, the key thing there with chemotherapy and radiation obviously are um, specialist uh, techniques. They're, they're specialist oncologists. There's huge amounts of um, occupational health and safety um, and uh, additional safety training that goes into um, the facilities and the, um, uh, the, the experts that use that stuff. Um, and, you know, when I first uh, started doing um, uh, some of this work, we did do a little bit of introductory chemotherapy and we did get into the occupational health and safety uh, requirements to make that safe. But it quickly became apparent that in general practice, that stuff is just too expensive um, because you're doing it so infrequently, the drugs go out yes. of date. Um, it's just too expensive to do in general practice. Whereas in uh, specialist practice, they have the critical mass and the number of cases that they can uh, justify um, You know the drugs. And also, it's a little bit like many things in veterinary practice. Um, I think we could all do it, but 
if you do it more frequently, you're going to be more proficient. And so um, uh, me having a crack every once in a while probably was less valuable for the the clients than referring them to a specialist that uh, was doing it, you know, two or three times a week. So um, one of the specialist practices, give them a call, discuss the case in advance. Um, most of the specialist centres now have oncologists and avian specialists on hand. And so um, you probably need to get those people connected up uh, so they can talk about the the right way to work through those cases. Um, uh, but um, but I know there's an increasing number of them that uh, chemotherapy, and the chemotherapy often starts as an extension of um, the protocols that might be used in other species. But um, we're finding that uh, um, there are adaptations to avian cases with chemotherapy um, that, uh, that need to be made. Um, that not all the medications we can use in other species are safe to use in birds. Um, but um, there still are some pretty impressive results with uh, anecdotal cases at the moment. And I think it's important to keep going with those so that we build up that bank of information that we can provide to clients about the best way to treat their birds. Well, very comprehensive answer there. <laughs> what about issues? Um, you, you touched on a couple there. Um, what? And, and I think one of them specifically talks about access to information and, and literature, et cetera, and um, how, to, how you know, dose rates, et cetera, and you've sort of probably covered that one. Um, yeah, the other big yeah. one is cost, Mark, which you've, again, touched on. Well, I think the key thing that, you know, the, the first thing about cost is that um, that I would mention is that we know that the... Uh, the actual cost of the drug for many situations in uh, in our um, avian and exotic practice, the actual cost of the drug is not not the main part of the you know the cost to the client. It's the expertise and understanding and using the drug and maintaining a pharmacy and all that sort of stuff. Um, but in chemotherapy, the the drugs are very very expensive, and so. The small size of our patients does play a role in lowering the total cost of uh, chemotherapy, for example. Um, and similarly with radiation, when we're not necessarily talking about the, the same doses um, or same frequency of doses that we might be talking about in other species. So yes. while the costs are considerable and I wouldn't downplay them at all, um, they're not often not as overwhelming as sometimes might be you know, the initial thought process suggests. The other issue I've found quite regularly, Brendan, is that many of the protocols will um, include um, uh, some component of uh, the use of corticosteroids. The corticosteroids will uh, sensitise many of the cancer cells to subsequent um, chemotherapy uh, options, and many of the, the uh, cancer cells will react negatively directly to the corticosteroids um, but as those of us who work with birds know um, they have a particular sensitivity and um, and there are the risk of significant complications in using corticosteroids bombing out their immune system completely exposing them to the risk of aspergillosis um, but uh, I think there's an increasing amount of data um, to suggest that there are ways to manage those um, potential risks and uh, work with particular doses um, uh, and particular 
corticosteroids um, to get the optimal outcome. So I think we're advancing significantly in this area. Excellent. And I think you wanted to chat about, well, the interaction between clients requesting or going ahead with this potentially expensive surgery as opposed to the fact that some of these are birds that may live a fair amount of time, Mark? Well, I think it's always one of the things that as a, uh, I suppose, veterinary oncology differs from human oncology in that we often are thinking about the length of life of our patients post, post-treatment. Um, and um, I know even personally with some of my pets, we've made uh, quality of life decisions um, in very, very old patients, very, very old pets of mine, um, that were the decision was to not put them through um, a, uh, a procedure because they're, you know, they were 19-year-old cats. Um, I think the interesting thing about our birds, and particularly we talked about um, the number of cockatoos that we get to see uh, with tumours these days, is that there? It is highly likely that those birds, um, you know, galah thirty to fifty years, sulphur-crested cockatoos sixty years is not uncommon. Yeah. Um, some of the big, you know, the palm cockatoos I was looking at earlier today will often get to a hundred years of age. And um, so, if you've got a bird that has a tumor, a cockatoo that has a tumor when it's um, you know, in its twenties, it's conceivable that if you cure that bird. Um, you will give it considerable additional quality life. And even if you don't cure it, um, uh, then because it's likely to live a long time, um, it, even if it's living with a um, ameliorated neoplastic process, it still might live and have great quality of life for a very long time. So I think that's a factor to take into account when you're dealing with avian oncology. Yes, yes. And I think one of your final comments, Mark, was the difficulty of diagnosing the condition early. Do you want to comment on that? Well, as we both know, if you can get into these things early, there just is it's just positive all round. The the birds cope with the surgery much better. Um, the likelihood of a complete excision is much greater. The the chance of excellent healing is greater. So getting in there early is is uh, is one of the priorities, I reckon. And and that's why I think you should be fairly aggressive with diagnostic procedures because if you sort of do them piecemeal over a couple of years, um, that's when you might end up in a situation where it's progressed beyond the point where it's uh, likely to get a positive outcome. So um, that early diagnosis is critical. And of course, birds, like all our um, small animals, have quite an exaggerated preservation reflex. They want to look normal. So identifying that something's wrong at an early stage, it can be very difficult. Birds have the added disadvantage of um, their plumage, which conceals a myriad of problems. And so um, making sure that as part of our physical exam, we disrupt the contours of the plumage and and actually touch the structures underneath, I think is an absolutely critical thing for veterinarians to do. Um, we can't expect clients to know what's going on under the feathers, under the wings, between the, you know, in the inguinal region. Um, we've got to make sure that we're examining those things at every opportunity 
to get an early diagnosis and maybe move forward with these. Yep. Excellent comment, Mark. And, well, I think you've covered your last little dot point, Mark. The future. What do you want to mention about the future? Well, I think there's two things to say about the future, Brendan. The future of avian oncology is really bright um, and will benefit from um, increasing an increasing and expanding database. And so I encourage everyone that works with these cases, even if there's a, a, a negative outcome, even if the bird doesn't survive the, the treatment or whatever, get publishing, you know, get involved with UPAV and, and uh, uh, publish that anecdotal case in, in some forum somewhere so that it adds to the amount of information that we have. Uh, the other thing that's interesting and, um, and, and I'm only going to pick one example for the sake of um, brevity, um, but I know that there's an increasing interest in um, novel treatments um, and, um, and the cannabinoids are, are probably something that we should talk more expansively on in another uh, episode. But I know that there's an increasing number of veterinarians around the world looking firstly at the, the palliative effects of cannabinoids, um, but in some situations, these uh, compounds uh, would appear anecdotally to have some anti-neoplastic effects. And so it'll be interesting as uh, time goes on and new things are tried with birds to see novel treatment uh, um, processes and modalities develop. And I think that'll be a, a, a good horizon for us to get over, Brendan. And we can have a follow-up podcast, Mark, once we have some of those novel treatments used more frequently, Mark, um, and you've got some spare cannabinoids um, that you've <laughs> got left over <laughs> from up north there, Mark, although by the sound of it, then the humidity and the wet season is enough to send your tropo by itself let alone any chemical um, enhancements. Is that correct? <laughs> Very well said, Brendan. I think with that, we'll get out of here and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.